And later we read from Luke chapter 2, after Christ has been born and presented to the temple, first we meet Simeon and then we meet Anna, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's amazing to think of all the people in Luke's gospel who either put their trust in Jesus, are amazed by Jesus, or who are blessed by Jesus. You have Zechariah, the priest, Mary, a young virgin, John the Baptist, who will grow to be this wild-eyed prophet. You have rural people, city people, fishermen, revolutionaries, lepers, paralytics, centurions, widows, children, infants, sinners, tax collectors. You have sinful women. You have rich women. You have suffering women. You have one woman, Joanna, the manager of Herod's household, Legion, the demoniac, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. You have Samaritans and Jews, Gentiles, prodigal son, blind beggars, poor, pious, Lazarus, rich, generous Zacchaeus. You even have a thief on the cross. What do all of those persons have in common? Can you think of it? It's a trick question. Nothing. <laughs> they have nothing in common except perhaps this, that they were humble enough to look for Jesus, to find comfort in Jesus, and to be amazed by Jesus. They have nothing else in common, men, women, different ethnicities, different tribes, different parts of the socioeconomic system rich, poor, healthy, infirmed, nothing in common except humble enough to be amazed by Jesus. Simeon is another one of those people, if you were here on Sunday, you heard of Simeon's song. Anna is another one. Anna and Simeon are twins, not biological twins, but they are twinned characters in Luke's gospel two sides of the same coin. In fact, you may not have noticed, but they are one of several pairs of male-female twins, so-called, in Luke's gospel. Think of it. In chapter 1, we see Mary and Zechariah. Both are waiting for unexpected children. Both receive a message from an angel. Both sing out their song of praise to the Lord. First the Magnificat, then the Benedictus, in chapter 7, we find a centurion and the widow of nine in A-I-N. Both receive miraculous healings for their loved ones. Chapter 8, we see Jairus and a bleeding woman. Both put their faith in Jesus and he provides miraculous healing. In chapter 10, we have a good Samaritan 
And we have good Martha. And they show us opposite sides of the same coin. The good Samaritan shows us to love our neighbor, do deeds of mercy. And Martha shows us, together with her sister Mary, how to love God, serve Christ, and sit at his feet. In chapter 18, we have the persistent widow and we have the tax collector, both commended by Jesus, the widow for her tenacity and the tax collector for his humility. So we have all throughout Luke's gospel, these male and female twinned characters. And so we have in chapter two, Simeon and Anna. Think about it, they are both in the temple Simeon comes to the temple, and Luke says that Anna never left the temple. Some of you have children, perhaps, who say that about church. We are here all the time. Well, Anna didn't actually live there. You couldn't do that. But when it says she was there day and night, she was in the the court of women, and she was there sun up to sundown, worshiping, speaking, fasting, praying. They're both in the temple. They're both old. Simeon, we assume, was old because he's waiting to die, and he says, now your servant may depart in peace. Anna, we know, is at least 84. If we read this correctly, she was married for seven years and then has been a widow for most of her life. They're both prophets. Simeon is not called a prophet, but we know the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it's said that he spoke by the Holy Spirit when he says that he wouldn't die before he saw Christ and that this child would be a sign spoken against. So he is giving a prophetic word. Anna is specifically called a prophetess. Prophecy is different than preaching and teaching. Prophecy is a supernatural word of insight or revelation. And while the public prophets in Israel were all men, there are several examples of women who exercised some kind of private ministry of prophecy. Think of Miriam or Deborah or Huldah or Noadiah, who was a wicked prophetess, or Isaiah's wife, or later in the New Testament, Philip's four daughters. Here we have Anna called a prophetess because she was speaking the words of the Lord. And then most importantly, we see they're twinned because both Simeon and Anna are godly. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. So there we see quite clearly that he was holy. And then verse 37 says, Anna never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. These are obvious descriptions of their piety. But did you notice one other thing they have in common? One other way that Luke indicates for us that these are exceptionally godly people. Look again at what it says about Simeon in verse 25. A man righteous and devout, and then it says this, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Do you see something similar if you turn the page in verse 38? And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Curious that both of them are given their godly characteristics with reference to waiting. Simeon as one who was and Anna as one who spoke to those who were. We must not separate their waiting from their godliness. 
To be godly is to be waiting for God's kingdom. Their longing was not a measure of their discontent. Rather, it was a measure of their faith. Have you ever considered that waiting is an act of worship? Waiting is often an act of humility, obedience, waiting for your spouse, the one that's always of the two of you running late. Don't look right now to say which one it is, which one of your children, which one of your parents, waiting, waiting for job report, waiting for a test to come in, waiting. It's an act of humility. And supremely so when we are waiting for God. There is a waiting that speaks of discontent, a sort of fist raised to God, how dare you? And then there is the waiting that we see all over the Bible, in the Psalms, in the Gospels, from Jesus himself. And it's not the waiting of a raised fist, but the waiting of open arms. How long, O Lord? Now, what in particular were they excited about? What was everyone waiting for? Look in verse 25. It says, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that doesn't really sound terribly exciting to us. We hear our English word consolation. We think of someone on a game show. Sorry, you did not win the $10 million prize, but... A lovely consolation gift, this fabulous blender. We think of a consolation as something, as a kind of runner-up. But that's not what he means here. The consolation is the comfort, the hope, the salvation that comes from God. God's consoling His people. Are any of you here tonight looking for someone to console you? Perhaps you're even surrounded by family and friends. Perhaps you have awaiting you in the days ahead nothing but one activity after another, and yet in the midst of all of that, you feel alone, missing the one you love, far from those closest to you, or simply feeling out of place in this world. You're longing for some consolation. They were longing for God to come and heal That's consolation. And they were waiting for God to rescue them. That's redemption. That's what Anna says. She spoke to those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Deliver us. Purchase us. Set us free. In other words, they saw themselves as those who were sick and in bondage. They were desperate people. And desperate people sometimes have little recourse except to wait. Christmas, though we often don't think of it in these terms, is for those of you who are crying out, how long? We think of Christmas as those who are full, going to be full on food, full on song, full on merriment, full of presents, but Christmas is for those who are, in another real sense, hungry, empty, searching, waiting, Do you find yourself constantly, eagerly longing for God to show up, to heal hurts, to drive out fear? 
I would go so far as to say this, you may not be a Christian if you do not have some sort of longing. Christians are, among other things, people who know that the best is yet to come, people who know that this is not supposed to satisfy. And if you find yourself tonight, though you don't think of yourself as a Christian or you don't even think of yourself as a particularly religious person, but you find yourself longing for a better world, hungry for justice, wanting to find a better hero, a better life, something or someone transcendent, then maybe your heart is more open to Christ than you might think. Because sometimes it's not that Christ comes to those who have all the answers, but to those who have the right questions. The Gospel of Luke not only begins with godly people who are waiting, Simeon, Anna, speaking to those awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem, but perhaps if you know this gospel, you remember that it ends with godly people waiting. Turn for a moment to the end of the book, to Luke chapter 23. After Jesus' birth, after He grew up, after His life, after His trial, after His crucifixion, after His burial, but before His resurrection, there are just four times in Luke's gospel where this Greek word for waiting is used in this way. Once with Simeon, once with Anna, once when Jesus tells a parable about those servants who are waiting for their master to return, and then this is the fourth occasion. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Now, right there something should be going off in your head. Hmm, that sounds a lot like chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. So, we have a Simeon, righteous and devout in chapter 2. Now, we meet a good and righteous man named Joseph. And then look what verse 51 says, who had not consented to their decision. What decision? He's a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish people. And he stood out and stood apart from their decision to crucify Jesus. And, into verse 51, he was looking. Now, this is the same Greek word translated earlier as waiting. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. You see, Joseph was a part of this council, this Sanhedrin that bribed Judas, that convicted Jesus, that sent him to Pilate. These are the Jewish Big wigs, and Joseph of Arimathea was one of them, and yet it says he had not consented to their decision. Why? Because he was a waiter. He was waiting for something better, waiting for something more fulfilling, waiting for something higher, something purer, something richer, something freer. Do you remember the the scene in The Incredibles, Mr. Incredible comes home and he's mad and he picks up a car and he puts it down and there's a little boy watching and then later they see that boy, he's looking at them and he says something like, what are you waiting for? What are you looking at? He says, I don't know, something amazing. Do something 
incredible. Joseph didn't know perhaps exactly what he was waiting for, but he wanted to see something incredible, something amazing, some consolation like Simeon was looking for, some redemption like Anna was looking for. And so he did not consent to their decision. Sometimes waiting for Jesus means standing out in opposition to the world around you, maybe in opposition to those closest to you. It takes courage. But if you are longing for a consolation that is better than the approval of men and women, you're hoping for a redemption that cannot come from any political power or president, then you have a streak of some countercultural defiance. I will not bow to the altar of materialism. I will not capitulate to relativism. I will not laugh at immorality. I may not live my life like everyone else. I will not compromise on what I know is right because I am waiting for Christ to come. And so Joseph did not consent to their decision and action. Do you see how Luke is intentionally weaving and telling this story? Simeon waiting, Anna waiting, at the very end, Joseph waiting. And did you know that the book ends, the very end of this book ends again with God's people waiting? Chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, the word waiting isn't there, but what are they doing? The very last thing Jesus says, now you wait because I have another gift. It's not an it. It's a person. It's my spirit coming to you, so wait to be clothed on high. God's people are those who wait. As a parent, I hear things come out of my mouth like, hurry up, we are all waiting for you, said with much pastoral love. (laughs) Or, go ahead, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? It's a good question, actually. What would make your dreams come true? If only in 2020 I could have blank, what is in that blank? If only I could have sometime in my life X, what is that X? What does consolation look like to you? No, it doesn't have to be just one thing. It's okay to want food, to want a job, to miss loved ones, but what ultimately are you waiting for? What is the redemption you are longing for? You think of that famous line which preachers have quoted so often from C.S. Lewis that we are often like little children making mud pies in the slums because we don't know what a holiday at the sea is like. We're too easily pleased. And we think that all that the world has given us is such a treasure, and there is so much more. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those, listen, 
who are eagerly waiting for him. When I was a kid, I would get myself through those long weeks from Thanksgiving to Christmas just fixated on December 25, just absolutely riveted as a small child with the miracle of the incarnation I was <laughs> and presence. I made up an acronym for myself, TAC, Think About Christmas, T-A-C. I would remind myself, I'd look out the bus window, T-A-C, think about Christmas. It's coming. The presents under the tree, they're coming. And there was a, a pain in the waiting, but there was a joy and a hope because I wouldn't wait forever and I knew that what I was waiting for was good. You see, even more than what we have, our hearts are revealed by what we long for. What are you waiting for? The consolation that comes only from God? The redemption that comes only from Christ? Are you waiting for the Christ child who was and is God in the flesh? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Perhaps the only one who was given his whole life's purpose, looking backward, everything about the birth and the life of Jesus is to be read backwards through his death, that even before he was born, it was a straight line to the cross. He was born so that he might die, that he would live the life we could not live, he would die the death that we deserved, and that shameful, painful death on the cross for our shame, for our sin, for our rebellion, he would be our redemption for all those who wait for him. Do you see how that puts a little different spin on it? It might be one thing, all those who can check off the right theological box about him, well, that's important too. But Hebrews 9 does not say that he will come again to save those who pass the theology test, but he will come to save those who are waiting. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that we were waiting for at the first Christmas and we wait for again at the second Advent. Our Father in heaven, give to us those hearts. We pray you would remind us of things we may have forgotten. You would impress upon us things that we have not known. You would bring to us things that perhaps we have intellectually understood, but we have never felt or not for many years have we really believed. So give to us longing hearts for Israel's strength and consolation, for hope of all the earth that thou art. And may you be the dear desire of every nation, and not only for every nation, but the joy of every longing heart in this room. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.